I need my Bible to preach. <laughs> I want to thank Aaron and then future in the future, short futures, thank them also for uh, leading us in worship and for leading us in communion, uh, saving my, my voice for the proclamation of the word of God. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. We love it. We are fed by it. Without it, we would wither. We would wander. We would be nothing in your sight. Thank you for your word. Lord, help me to preach it to your people. May your word change them to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Turn with me to Genesis 25. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. Indeed, the whole chapter, but uh, I mean the whole 18 verses, but we'll just be looking at the first 11. Who here is a Sherlock Holmes reader or fan? It's kind of a, yeah, that's good. In one of his novels, Holmes was found examining an ordinary pipe left behind at a crime scene. And after a long silence, he, he proclaims that it was used, quote, by a muscular left-handed person with an excellent set of teeth, careless in habits, and with no need to practice economy. Thank God for Watson, who is the foil for us in the novels, and he asks Holmes to explain how he knows that. And Holmes goes on to reply, the remnants of tobacco in the pipe were high-priced, so the man could obviously afford it. The pipe is charred down the right side, so it is obvious that it was lit by a left-handed man. The mouthpiece of the pipe was bitten through, so the man must be fairly muscular and with good teeth. All this from examining a pipe. What we have before us today in our scripture is a pretty ordinary text. Seemingly mundane. Just telling us of, of the, the rather unnoteworthy death of Abraham. A plain brown paper bag type of text. Nothing dramatic is happening, nothing flashy, nothing glitzy. But as we begin to examine this text a little closer, I think like Holmes, we'll see what God wants for us here. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 25. God's word says, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan. Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. 
But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son, Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days and years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. And he was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave at Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, in the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac his son, and Isaac settled in Beer Laharoi. That is God's word. No scripture is given to us superfluously. There's no wasted scripture. It always has a purpose. And here at the end of Abraham's life, God wants to impress upon us one grand truth. And that grand truth is the promises of God are trustworthy. That's the main idea of this text. The promises of God are trustworthy. Now, if you're taking notes, I want to put you on alert that the second point there, you can scratch that out because we are just going to focus on the first point, which is the promises of God are trustworthy. This text screams that. In a poetic way, Abraham's life is bookended in a way with the promises of God. Abraham's life began back in chapter 12, you'll remember, with him being called out of Ur, with God telling him, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. Hear the promises of God. I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So there we started back at the beginning of of God revealing Abraham's life to us with those three grand promises. The promises of land, the promises of a people, and the promises of a savior. And then throughout his life, so he started with that bookend, and then throughout his life, we are just, those, those promises are just repeated and reaffirmed and restated, isn't it? It's like, it's like he's putting books in the bookshelf of those chapters. And the here God uses the coda of Abraham's life to put the other bookend of his trustworthy promises on the life of Abraham. So here we have a bookshelf with two great bookends, if you will stating that the promises of God are trustworthy. And we have to look at the text a little closer in order to see those promises once again. Look with me at verse 8. Verse 8 in our text. Verse 8 says that Abraham died at a good old age, an old man full of years. Now that could just be telling us Okay, he's 175. He's old. 
But if you're listening to the words that God is using, again, God doesn't, he has an economy of words that he uses. He uses words very precisely and specifically. You should be able to hear the promise that God gave Abraham way back in chapter 15. That great covenant that he cut with him. When God told Abraham, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. God is making sure that we start seeing the promises coming true. Seeing that he is a trustworthy God. When he says something, he does it. Let's also look at verse 9 where we read that Isaac and Ishmael have temporarily put aside their differences in, in order to honor and bury their father. And we're given a very specific place, aren't we? Those words in the cave of Machpelah, the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre. Why be so specific? It's because God wants our minds to go back to chapter 23 of that great negotiation that Abraham had where Abraham refused to be given a borrowed grave. Right? He, they were saying, here, take this. You can use it. Abraham wants a piece, a wedge of the promised land. A deposit guaranteeing the whole. And here God is, is using that same language, that same specific location to bring our minds back and, and help us to remember that God is a trustworthy God. Even when the promises are seen only in a part. Only partially seen. We'll come back to that. Let's not overlook the fact that this whole text through, through verse 18 is bracketed by genealogies. Did you notice that? We have the, his sons of, of Keturah in verses 1 through 4, and then in verses 12 through 18, we have the sons of Ishmael. So this text is bracketed by genealogies, reminding us of the repeated promise throughout Abraham's life that your progeny, your descendants will be like the the dust on the earth, chapter 13. Like the stars in the heavens, chapter 15. Will be made into great multitudes, chapter 16. Into great nations, chapter 17. God is starting to fulfill that promise. He wants us to see that. Then look with me more closely at verses 12 through 16. There you have Ishmael's descendants listed. And if you, we took time, and you can take time right now because it's only counting to 12, look at how many sons he has. 12. And it even says in verse uh, 16, these are the sons of Ishmael, and these are the names by their village and their encampments. 12 princes according to their tribes. God is dropping a huge clue of his promise back in chapter 17. As for Ishmael, God said, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 what? Princes. And I will make him into a great nation. 
God's promises are totally trustworthy. But the promise perhaps that is emphasized the most here is found in verses 5 and 6. That wonderful fulfillment of the promise of a son from, as we just read, Sarah's dead womb and his body that was as good as dead. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. There's the promised son. And to his sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son, Isaac. He sent all others away from Isaac. Isaac alone remains in the promised land. The one through which all the nations will be blessed. Abraham is trusting God only through Isaac. The one that Yahweh promised when he said, from your very own body, you will have an heir. He is the one. The reason that this brown bag type text is here is to show this, oh, is that the promises made to Abraham have come true and are coming true. God, through this text, is crying out, trust me. Trust me. Just trust me. I'm totally trustworthy. As we reflect back on Abraham's life, I think that there are three challenging applications to our life when we begin to encounter this cry of God, trust me. There are three challenges that we encounter. First and most obviously, that we need to trust, we need to learn to trust God beyond what we can see. We need to learn to trust God beyond what we can see. Time and time again in Abraham's life, we see him looking around at his circumstances and doubting, don't we? I mean, that's, that's part of the encouragement of, of reading the scripture that talks about real men and women who stumble, who fall, who fail, who doubt, but as we have said, who, who stumble forward like us. And we see that here with Abraham in, in those chapters that we've just studied. He looks around and he, he doesn't see God's promises coming true. And so he, he begins to kind of help God. He looked around at the drought he was, he was experiencing in chapter 12 in Canaan, the promised land. And what did he do? You know what? I'll go down to Egypt. And we know how that ended. He looked around. He looked at Sarah's womb and said, it's been 25 years and that promise isn't coming true. Hagar. He looked at Abimelech. And said, I'm, I, Sarah, you got to be with me on this. You're not my sister. And lied. You're not my wife. And he lied. He looked at Ishmael. This is, the, this is the amazing one. He looked at Ishmael when he was talking to God and said, why not use him? 
I see Ishmael. I can feel Ishmael. I don't see the air you've been talking about for so long. He was walking by sight and not by faith. And we stumble like Abraham in exactly the same way for the exactly the same reasons. Because we don't trust God beyond what we can see. We, like Abraham, need to learn to trust God as if the promise has already come true. Listen to that again. We need to learn to trust God to the extent or as if the promise has already come true. A poet and an artist once examined a painting representing the healing of the two blind men at Jericho. The artist asked, what seems to you the most remarkable part of this painting? The poet said, everything is very clear. The grouping of individuals is beautifully done. The expressions on the faces and the use of color and light, beautiful. The artist found the most significant detail elsewhere. He pointed to a little corner of the painting And he asked, do you see this discarded cane right here? Yes, the poet said. The blind man has rushed to Jesus, who has rushed to Jesus, is so sure that he will be healed that he has left his cane behind. He went to Jesus as if he could already see. That's the type of faith that Abraham came to embrace. That's the kind of faith that he wants from us to trust him as if his promises that we don't see have come true. When Jesus tells us he will take care of us, as we just read in the Lord's Prayer, daily bread. Far too often we hold on to our canes and crutches of our own devising. We trust our own abilities. It's up to me. We trust our own planning. You know what? I will just plan this out so well. Don't worry about it, God. I got this. Any planners out there? How about work ethic people? You know what? I will just work harder. I'll work more. I'll work 18 hours a day. That's okay. I can do this. Any intellect people? I can figure this out. How about perseverance? I'll just gut it out. I'll just make do. In essence, we're trusting in ourselves. Instead of trusting in Jesus' promises. We need to drop our canes. We need to learn to drop those things. You need to learn that you're a son and a daughter of the Most High God. Trust him. He'll take care of you. He's a king that owns the cattle of a thousand hills. He tells you over and over again... I'm not going to let your foot slip. Let go of your cane. He is our shepherd. And he tells us, the very next line, 
You won't be in want. Don't worry. I'll take care of you. He knows the plans he has for you, he declares, doesn't he? Trust him. He tells us you're so much more important than the birds that you see. I take care of them, don't I? I'll take care of you. The hymn by Sevilla Martin, God Will Take Care of You. I almost chose it today. But me being who I am, I don't like repetitive hymns, so I didn't pick it. And then I went back to it. And I reread it. And I thought, how stupid of me. We should have sung this. Because through repetition, I mean, that's what he's been doing for chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 22, 23, 25. He's saying repetitively, trust me. I got you. Here are her words. Be not dismayed, whatever betide, God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide, God will take care of you. Through days of toil, when heart doth fail, God will take care of you. When dangers fierce your path assail, God will take care of you. All you may need, he will provide, God will take care of you. Nothing you ask will be denied, God will take care of you. No matter how many be the test, God will take care of you. Lean, weary one, upon his breast. Finish it. That's right. And lest we don't get it, her refrain is, God will take care of you through every day, over all the way. He will take care of you. God will take care of you. What do you think we're supposed to take away from that hymn? What do you think we're supposed to take away from the chapters of Abraham's life? Trust God's promises. He will take care of you. Maybe we should have sung this repetitive hymn in order to get that through my thick skull. God is trustworthy. Brothers and sisters, God is trustworthy. That leads us to the second application of trusting God's promises, and that is all we need to be all in on God's promises. We need to be all in on God's promises. When I had cable TV years ago, I was fascinated when the programs started. Now they're quite old, but when the programs started where they would film the Texas Hold'em tournaments, you know that? Remember that? That was 10 years ago when that became popular. The poker tournaments where players had huge stacks of chips, of money in front of them. They had amassed it and they'd, they'd whittled the table down to these two players. And at one point in the, in the poker match, when the person got the right cards, he would just push all his chips in, right? You know, and they'd fall all over the middle of the table. And you go, I'm all in. And I was, it, it always amazed me. These guys are pushing everything in. They have nothing to fall back on. They either win it all or they lose it all. It's all or nothing. 
They hold nothing back to rebuild. And that's what we see Abraham doing in verses 5 and 6. He's going all in with Isaac. Did you notice that? Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but he, he loves his other children, so he gives them gifts, makes sure they're okay. But he gives everything he has to Isaac. And then while he was still living, he sent them all away from Isaac to the east. And Ishmael, we read later on in, chapter, in verse 17, 18, Ishmael and his descendants settle in the south east of, of, of uh, Egypt. So he's putting everything on Isaac. And if, if you've been here for the weeks I've been preaching through Abraham, you realize that he was always hedging his bet, wasn't he? He's hedging his bet. The big hedge was Hagar, right? He was hedging his bet. Okay, I don't see this promise coming. I'm going to have a, a, an heir through Hagar. That's legal, right, God? He's hedging his bets. And here, he's no longer hedging. He pushes all the chips into the center table and says, it's all Isaac. It's Isaac or nothing. I'm with you, God. Finally, it's Isaac. He's no longer depending on any other child. He sends Keturah's children away. He sends Ishmael's away. I'm all in on Isaac. Have you ever been all in with God? Have you had that moment where you pushed everything in and said, this is it. Think about what you hold back. Pushing it all in on God. Because that's what it means to be a Christian. We had a hard saying that we read in Sunday school in John 6. We have a hard saying right here. To be a Christian, you have to push all your chips into the center of the table and be all in with God. You can't hold anything back. You have to go all in with Jesus. We see that in salvation. If you call yourself a born-again believer, you have to be all in on the scriptures that tell us about us, that tell you about you. You're a sinner in desperate need of forgiveness. That's what the, the scriptures tell us about us. You're, in your natural state, you're not a friend of God. God is actually your enemy. The scripture tells us that we are spiritually dead. That we need reviving. If you call yourself a friend of God, a Christian, you have to be all in on not only what the Bible tells you about you, but also what it tells you about your inability. What Isaiah 64.6 tells us about us is true. That our righteousnesses, the things we think are good, the things that we think are, we're doing good and earning good, God's favor, are actually 
filthy rags. What Hebrews 11 says is true. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So if you're sitting here today and you don't know Christ, what Scripture tells you is that there is no way to earn good favor with God. There's nothing you can do that God goes, ah, that's good enough. No amount of good deeds, no amount of helping people out sacrificially, no amount of giving, no amount of niceness, no amount of kindness. You can't be nice and kind enough. If you call yourself a believer, you have to be all in and rely on Jesus' completed work. That's what the scripture tells us. You have to push all your chips in and say, it's all on Jesus. None of it on me. That he lived that perfect life that none of us can ever live. And you look to his life and say thank you. Not to your goodness and say, see? If you call yourself a follower of Christ, you have to go all in, all in, and believe you deserve punishment. You have to, you have to believe it at the core of your soul that you deserve separation from God for eternity. That your sin, however small you may think it is, deserves the full weight of God's wrath. That no amount of penance or sorrow or weeping that you can do will ever satisfy God. Only believing in what Jesus did, the pain he went through, the suffering he went through, the death that he took on your behalf satisfies the wrath of God. If you call yourself a daughter or son of Christ, you need to go all in with the resurrection. You need to go all in with the resurrection, that Jesus rose from the dead bodily on the third day. That he is a living Savior. That what Romans 6 says is actually true, that we were buried with him in baptism of his death that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, you too may be raised. That's going all in on the resurrection. And finally, if you call yourself a Christian, you have to be all in for the rest of your life. Here's the, here's the tough one. You have to be all in for the rest of your life. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Being a Christian means living an all-in type of life. Perhaps that's why we're drawn to Christians like Paul and the rest of the apostles who were all-in. We're drawn to people like John Huss and Martin Luther of the Reformation who were all-in. You know, Luther standing before the Diet of Worms and saying, I can't do anything else. Scripture won't let me. Do what you will. 
Perhaps we're, we're attracted to the David Brainerds and the Adoniram Judsons and the William Careys and the Hudson Taylors and the Jim Elliots because they said, I'm all in. My life is no longer my own. They put their hands to the plow and never, ever looked back. They were all in with their life. That's what he calls us to. That's what we see in Abraham's life. The last application we see in Abraham's life in trusting God's promises is God's promises slowly unfold. God's promises slowly unfold. Our experiences with the promises of God is like Abraham's. Some promises we do see in this life. Some promises are fulfilled in this life. Abraham saw his heir come from his body, Isaac. Abraham experienced the long life that was promised him. Abraham could count the 12 princes and go, he said 12, there's 12. Many times we see God's promises coming true in our own life. Maybe as I read the the lyrics from the hymn, God will take care of you, maybe you're shaking your head. God has taken care of me. Maybe he's been faithful to give you daily bread, Matthew 6. Maybe you have suffered for the faith. John 16. Maybe you have suffered for the faith. That's a promise to every believer. Perhaps your faith has put you at odds with your family, Luke 9. Or perhaps you've experienced great, deep, abiding, inexplicable joy when you look around at the circumstances and you go, how can that be? We praise God when we experience God's promises coming true in our lives. But our experience with God is also like Abraham in another way. We don't many times see the full completion of God's promises, do we? Some of God's promises we will only see partially, if at all, in this life. Abraham had a little wedge of the promised land, didn't he? God said, I'll give it all to you. It's all yours. But he only had a wedge when he died. Abraham only could look and see maybe as many people as could fill this church. Boy, that doesn't look like the dust of the beach or the dust of the earth or the stars in the heavens. And Abraham certainly did not see the promised blessing to the whole world. He just saw Isaac. This, this is it. The only one. I don't know if you know the story of Kyle McDonald. It's pretty fascinating. He was stuck in a dead-end job and strapped for cash. So he came up with a pretty improbable plan. Starting with one red paperclip, he vowed he would trade on the internet until he traded up to a house. Pretty improbable. First, he traded the red paperclip for a fish-shaped pen. Next, he traded the pen for a doorknob. He traded the doorknob for a Coleman stove. He traded the Coleman stove for a Honda generator. The generator for a Budweiser sign and a keg of beer. 
He traded the keg and the sign for a snowmobile. The snowmobile he traded for a two-person trip to British Columbia. British Columbia trip he traded for a box truck. He took the box truck and traded it for a recording contract. He traded the recording contract for a year's rent, rent, not own, rent in Phoenix, Arizona. He traded the year's rent for an afternoon with Alice Cooper. He traded that afternoon for a kiss snow globe. He traded the snow globe for a role in the movie Donna on Demand. And on July 5th, 2006, exactly one year and 14 trades later, McDonald finally reached his goal. He exchanged the part in the Hollywood movie for a house in Saskatchewan, Canada. All this from one red paperclip. Do you know why the New Testament starts with the genealogy of Abraham? It's one red paperclip. That's God's promise. God's promise in Abraham that the snake crusher will come from Abraham. And Abraham looks at Isaac and goes, this is it. Who passes it to Jacob. Who passes it on generation after generation after generation. 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ is born. What the life of Abraham teaches us is that we have to be patient with the promises of God. Many times they slowly unfold in our own lives. Many times we don't see them coming true in our own lives. Many times we look around and we think, I have a little peace in my life, but not the full peace that we'll have in glory. Any unity that we experience in Christ is but a foretaste a little nibbling of the complete unity we'll have when he comes back. Our communion that we are about to take, the Lord's Supper, this worship service that we are sitting here, this spiritual experience that God has called us into, what we just experienced is but a foretaste of what it's going to be like with him forever, feeding on his word perfectly satisfied, content to be there forever. The close, intimate, loving relationships that we share as brothers and sisters, that closeness will pale in comparison to the closeness we'll have. The love we have for Christ is but a fraction of what it will be when we see him face to face. Let's take a lesson from Abraham late in life and go all in on the promises of God. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word today. Now be with us as we commune together at your Lord's table. In Jesus' name, amen.